Okay, sermon notes are here, Bible's here, juice is here, I'm all set, podium, Mark said go. Uh, we're talking about addiction this morning, addiction, how to overcome things that you are addicted to, and I want to start by doing a little informal survey here, I need to know this, because for years I've kept this secret all to myself, and I'm going to come out of the closet on something here, oh no, <laughs> My wife's going, please. What are you going to say? I don't know how many people there are in this room for whom these are more than just something to clean your ears with. I want to know, uh, how many people here derive intense pleasure out of putting these in your ear and reaming your ear out? Okay, okay, we got some. Yes, come forth, there's deliverance for you. We're going to start a Q-Tips Anonymous group where we get together and... Started when I was a kid. I just had a fetish for these things. But it's, it's like, and I believe that this is a, a widespread problem in America, but it's, it's, it's kept secret because people are so ashamed. You think about it now. How often do you really need to clean wax out of your ears? Once a week, once a month, what is it? But if you cleaned it only that frequently, it would take you seven years to use one of these boxes. The companies would go broke. Okay, you can do puff paints with them, but what else? Uh, I think there are people all over the place who, like myself, are using these things five, six, seven times a day. You get out of the shower, and if you don't have one of these, you get very irate, very irritated. You start trying to find substitutes. But there is no substitute for the Q-tip. You ever try to do that? You try to roll up toilet paper really tight and get in there, and <laughs> nothing works. Put the toilet paper on the end of a pen and put it in there, you know? All right. Addiction! Most of them... <laughs> I don't know why I brought that up. I just wanted to know. I really, there are a lot of people who do that. And addiction is anything that uh, really enslaves you, that controls you for psychological reasons or for physiological reasons. There's a real gray area here. And I want to try to fine-tune what I'm zeroing in at by talking about this gray area. It's a real question as to when a normal habit or a routine becomes an actual addiction. Uh, when, you know, when is it something that Christ really wants us to be free from? It's good to have a healthy work ethic and to like to work and to be ambitious and supply for your family. That's a great thing. But when does that become a, a, a sort of an addiction to work? And there are thousands and thousands of people, many Christians, who are addicted to work. It gets in the way of their family and many other things. Where's that fine line? When do you cross over the line? When do you cross over the line on addiction to caffeine? You know, a cup or two, three in the morning is you know, normally okay. So it's interesting, in the last century, the Christians were really against drinking uh, coffee. Most of them didn't have any problems with smoking, but they said you should never drink coffee. Well, when does that become a caffeine addiction? You know, I, by the time at 10.30 in the morning, 11, if I haven't had a cup of coffee, it's starting to feel kind of, you know, like a flu thing. But I can quit any time. Alcohol. The Bible's really clear that, that for most people, having a drink now and then, Paul recommends it to Timothy. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But when do you cross the line and, and become addicted to it, where you need it to medicate something going on in your life or, or what have you? When does ordinary teenage self-discovery become compulsive masturbation? When does food become gluttony? It, it's normal to, to enjoy eating food. But when does that become a, a medication to get you out of depression or get you out of anxiety? People eat for a lot of different reasons. And there's no easy way to settle all those areas, and I'm not going to try to do that. I'm just going to suggest to you a couple of criteria 
You have to listen to the Holy Spirit, apply this message to your life in the way that you honestly know it needs to be applied, if it needs to be applied at all. But no one can really say that, that this is something, you know, that, that this is an area that you are definitely addicted to. You have to come to that conclusion yourself. And there's a, lot, there's, there's a lot of gray area here. But let me submit this to you. If something controls you more than you control it, chances are you're addicted to it. If it controls you more than you control it, and you've got to be honest with yourself on this one, you're probably addicted. If it's something that has negative, significant negative consequences for your life, for your own individual life, or maybe for your family, chances are it's an unhealthy addiction. Anytime we significantly deny freedom in our life, it ends up having consequences. Here's a good question to ask yourself, a good rule of thumb. What happens to you if you voluntarily or involuntarily go without this thing? What happens to you? What kind of repercussions does it have? For example, and, and you who are, are non-smokers or have never been addicted to nicotine, you don't understand this. Um, I've been through it, and, 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 and those of you who have been through it or are in it now will understand what I'm talking about. But, but you're in a lecture, for example, and, and uh, uh, the thing is four hours long. The last hour of it, you have trouble concentrating because you're thinking about how badly you want to get outside to have that cigarette. The master starts to say, hey, come over here. Or you have that panic attack if you realize that you're in a situation where you can't get any and you ran out and you're going to go for, for five hours without some. Or you try to quit. You just got to... It's torture. It feels like torture. It feels like a basic need in your life, like air and food and sleep. It's, you feel like it's not being met. You feel weird. You feel out of place. You, 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 you know, by the third day, you're clawing at the walls. You can't think of much else. You get ornery. Do you ever, some of you have been married to people who have had to quit, uh, tried to quit, and, and uh, man, they get irritable, they get ornery, they get, you get away from me, you know. I want a cigarette, I want it now. It becomes, it's, it, you become obsessed with it. It's very, very difficult. Your mouth gets dry, you can't think straight, your head feels lightheaded, you just feel like, and you get to the point where you'd do anything. You'd walk 10 miles gladly for a cigarette. Just want one. People who drink, people who are addicted to drinking have the same kind of thing. They get thirsty, what they call getting thirsty. Got to have a drink. I got to get a drink. I don't want Coke. I don't want milk. I don't want orange juice. I want Schlitz or Maltimer or, or whatever they, they are. Uh, Paps or I don't know what they, I, I got to have some vodka. I want that buzz. And it becomes more important, than, more important than food, more important than sleep, more important than family, more important than work. You got to have it. It's like you're being suffocated. You can't breathe. It feels like you're going against nature not to get the drink. People who have sexual addictions feel the same way when they try to withdraw from that. Whether it's an, an obsession with uh, pornography or some other sort of sexual compulsion, sexual addiction, to them, somehow it gets in their mind that this is a basic need, and when you go without it for any length of time, it feels like you're suffocating. It feels like a basic need's not being met, and they've got to get back to it. The voice is always calling them. They can't walk by the bookstore. They can't go into the Tom Thumb without seeing the pictures there. And it's kind of, it's, there's, there's constantly magnets there pulling them towards it. A workaholic feels that way when they're not working. You take a day off, you want to spend it with the family, but you feel antsy, you feel out of place, you feel useless, you feel like you're not doing anything, something's really wrong here, and you find excuses to leave the family and go back to the office. And all, this is slavery. You know you're enslaved when, when you try to get away from it, the master punishes you. Bad, don't you ever try to leave me. And I'll inflict pain on you. And you know you're in slavery when, when you try to leave, the master tries to win you back, tries to trick you, talks to you. Don't they? Some of you know what I'm talking about firsthand. 
talks to you. Oh, come on. I wasn't that bad. I wasn't that hard on you. I'm your best friend. How can you go without me? <coughs> Just one. It's okay, for old time's sake. For old time's sake. You buy the whole pack, but you know, it's smoke one and throw it away. How often does that happen, you know? You buy the pack, you smoke the pack, and then you go buy the carton. That's how it works. But once he's got you, oh, good. Come on, come on back. Come on. Don't you miss me? Just one drink. You can buy the whole six-pack. You'll throw it away or share it with friends. Just have one drink. Oh, just, you know. This has been a hard week. It comes up with things like that. The voice says, it's been a hard week. You deserve it. You deserve a break. You've gone three days without me. Let's just celebrate the success by having one of me. See? Isn't it true? It's so deceptive. Come on back now. Or this is a special occasion. This, is a, this isn't like any ordinary moment. This is a special occasion. And then you ask the master, well, what is a special occasion? And the master says, well, it's Tuesday. How often does Tuesday come around? This is, a, this is a Tuesday morning. You deserve a break on Tuesday morning. Come on. You're driving in the car a long ways. You deserve a break when you're all alone in the car. And aren't you just bored stiff without me? Come on back. It's a special occasion. You're, a home, you're, you're, you're alone in the hotel room by yourself. No one will ever know. Come on. Let's just... The master begins to deceive you. And when you find your brain constantly playing tricks like that on you, you have been involved in something that is addictive. And it's a bondage on your life because it has negative consequences in your life. It has negative consequences on you personally. It's very hard to have one area of your life under bondage and to be disciplined in other areas of your life. It usually impacts your whole life. A lot of times for people who are addicted to one thing in their life, it's, it, it has repercussions on just their whole demeanor. They never really have the kind of freedom and spontaneity and carefreeness because they're under bondage over here. And it's like there's always something dragging them around. Like, you know, you just can't walk right because this, this thing's in bondage. It has repercussions on their health. Lung cancer or emphysema or, or sclerosis of the liver or sexually transmitted disease. There's a lot of health repercussions. There's a lot of repercussions in the family. I would just wonder how many families have fallen apart because of addiction to work. A widespread problem among non-Christians and Christians. Getting life from your work and you can't stop. How many families have broken up over that? Wife's neglected or the husband's neglected or the kids are neglected and it just falls apart. A lot of families have fallen apart because of addiction to alcohol or addiction to some other kind of drug or addiction to sexual compulsion. These are things that destroy families. It has negative repercussions in your life. It has negative repercussions spiritually because when there's an area of your life that is under bondage, that's one area of your life that is not under slavery to Christ and it's, it's a constant obstacle there. The Lord wants to pour forth his love and his grace into your life, but there's always sort of a block there. It has, it has this negative repercussion and this is a big one. If you really want to be serious in your Christian walk, the devil is going to use this thing as your Achilles heel and is going to try to grind you to a pulp with it. He'll, he'll, he'll try to make you feel, Satan will try to make you feel like you're always a second or third or fourth class Christian or probably you're not a Christian at all because you're probably the only person in this church or in any church, the devil will tell you, that has this particular kind of heinous addiction if people really knew. If this speaker up there he knew really what I was talking about, he'd know that this sermon doesn't apply to me because my addiction, my habit is, is special, it's heinous, it's vile. The devil gets you to believe that you're not even a Christian. How could you call yourself a Christian if, if you had this addiction in your life? And it'll use that you don't deserve to be in ministry. You don't have a testimony for the Lord. How dare you even show up in church? And so you're constantly walking way beneath the kind of resurrection power that the Lord died for us to have. You're in the tomb. You have the resurrection power, and yet you don't walk up because there's a stone blocking you in. The question is, how do you roll away this stone? How do you roll away the stone? Here's one way you don't roll away the stone, and it's the way that people usually take to try to get the stone rolled away. 
both in the church and outside of the church, one of the ways that we try to roll away stones is we try to, we have a philosophy. It's funny, we, we know that this doesn't work with, with education, but, 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 but we try as a culture, and especially as a Christian culture, to use this uh, to get people out of bondage to sin. We, we believe that if you make them feel lousy enough, miserable enough, low enough, that you bring forth positive behavioral changes. If I can just get you to feel miserable and lousy and sub-Christian and vile and all this kind of stuff for having this habit in your life, somehow that's going to produce a positive change in your life. You're going to want to get rid of it. It's kind of like telling a kid that, you know, trying to get a kid to have good grades by telling them how stupid they are. Or get a kid to be a great runner by telling them what a lousy runner they are or what have you. It just doesn't work that way. You can produce usually temporary changes in your life by that kind of shame tactic, but in the long run it usually does more harm than good for two reasons. When you preach like that, when we send that message out, everyone with their little addiction goes into hiding and says, oh, it's not safe to talk about that here. And it goes into hiding, and so it's never dealt with. But secondly, a lot of addiction is fueled by a sense of shame on the inside. Terrible sense of shame on the inside. And it's a way of medicating that shame. And when you intensify that shame, you're intensifying the very thing that drives them towards the addiction. It doesn't work that way. What I want to do is look at a scriptural passage that is profound. It's somewhat difficult, but it has got a dynamite stick that can liberate us if we get a hold of it. It's found in Romans chapter 6. I was just going to read a couple of verses, the verses that I, I, I had in your, um, uh, the verses that I had in, in uh, the bulletin. I've decided to do a little different tactic here. I'm just going to kind of read through the verse and, and, and really just ask the Lord to, to let the verse speak to us. Romans chapter 6, it's, it, it's almost bizarre in terms of how it, it uh, hits us with things we wouldn't expect. It's so radically different than the kind of approach that we usually get outside the church and even in the, the church that it'll be hard for us to believe it. But I want you to follow it. Let me pray for a moment. Lord, I pray that your word would come alive right now and free us. There are people here that... that uh, need to hear this because the enemy is using their issues to destroy them or destroy their families. God, liberate us. But I can't speak enough words and I can't speak them good enough in the limited time we have to make it come alive. You're just going to have to do a lot of work here, Lord. I'm just going to throw out little seeds, Lord, and, and I pray you'd, you'd use them as, as uh, bombshells in our life. We ask this in your name. Amen. This thing is going to tip over. I can just feel it. Romans chapter 6. I'm just going to read through here. This is an incredible portion of Scripture. It, it's, it is so powerful. Powerful. Do you believe me? It's powerful. Wait till you hear. Okay, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to this. Paul's talking about bondage in general. He's talking about sin in general, but it certainly applies specifically to addictions. What shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning that grace may abound? He says in, in 6.1. The issue he's getting at here, in a nutshell, is this. The Romans knew, as all Christians should know, that what God thinks of them is based only on the cross and their believing in the cross. But therefore, the Romans were thinking, well, look, at if that's true, then what I do doesn't make any difference. So why should I try to fight this bondage to sin? God loves me anyways. In fact, if God loves to forgive me, I'll just give him more things to forgive me of. I'm doing God a favor by sinning. It's amazing how twisted we can get. But it makes some kind of twisted sense. Now, Paul doesn't say... No, 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 shame, shame, shame. Oh, terrible, terrible person you are. He doesn't do that. What he says is this. Look at 6.2. By no means. 
Megenato in the Greek. Megenato, uh, not at all. That compares the thought. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? That's it in a nutshell. We died to sin. Now, when did we die to sin? What are you talking about? We're dead to sin. Sin's dead to us. What's he getting at? Let's look at the next verse, verses 4 and 5. We were therefore, or no, verse 3. Or don't you know, Romans, wake up here, you're dead to sin. You don't believe me? Well, well I want to re- remind you of something. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized, the Greek word there is baptizo, which means to dip or to immerse. All of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Follow me in this. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too should walk in newness of life. Here's what he's getting at in a nutshell. Lord, help me say this straight. Paul knows, it's assumed in the New Testament, and it should be assumed, I think, for us, if we're going to be a New Testament church, that that when you believe, you're baptized. It's the first thing that happens. You look at all the accounts of baptism, and what people would say, I believe in Jesus, they'd say, great, let's baptize you. Read Acts chapter 10, with the household of Cornelius. He says, we believe in the Lord, the Lord gives them the Holy Spirit. Peter says, well, let's get some water, let's baptize these people. Baptism was the first thing, it was the visible representation of what God did in a believer's life. And here's what it meant. You believe in the Lord. Paul says when you believe in the Lord, you identify with his death and with his resurrection. Here's what's going on. When you believe in the Lord, God Almighty, who's the only one who can do this, makes it so that it was as though you died on the cross of Calvary. The sin that you had was carried on the cross of Calvary. All that stood against you was was done for at the cross of Calvary. You really are identified with Jesus Christ when he dies on the cross of Calvary. And you really are identified with his resurrected life. And what baptism does is this. Paul says, you guys, remember your baptism. You, You don't believe that you're dead to sin. Well, what happened when you were baptized? You went down into the water and you came up out of the water. And what that was about was this. When you went down into the water, that was your old self, the old Greg Boyd, the self that is under slavery to sin. He died. He's dead. He's gone. He identified with Christ when Christ was buried in the ground. But then you came up out of the water, and when that happened, that was symbolizing that you come up out of the tomb. The life of Jesus Christ is now your life. You participate in his death. You participate in his life. Baptism is the tombstone of the old self. And it's the birth certificate of the new self. And his purpose is to be there as a reminder when we're inclined to forget about who we are. Sometimes I forget that I'm dead, dead to sin because I act like I'm not dead to sin. I forget that I'm dead to sin. But Paul says, okay, look, go back to the, read the tombstone. Here lies the old Greg Boyd. Oh, yeah, I am dead. Okay, I forgot for a second there. And then here's my birth certificate. I forget that I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. I forget that. But I can look at my birth certificate, my baptismal, and, and I see that, in fact, I'm raised to newness of life. Now, you know, there, of course, there's a lot of people today that don't have the, the tombstone and don't have the birth certificate, and it's a good thing to think about, process about, because it's a good thing to have, and it's a biblical thing to have. But by believing in the Lord, when you believe in the Lord and put your trust in Him to have your sins forgiven, what the Bible says is that you really die. This isn't a quaint little metaphor, a nice little poetic little twist that Paul's given here. You really die. The old self really dies. The self that's under sin really dies. 
And you are a new creature in Christ Jesus because Jesus Christ himself comes to reside within you. His resurrection life comes to reside within you. It really did happen. And Paul says, you've got, the first thing to know if you're going to be free from sin is that you've got to know that that is true. You've got to know that, that that is true. Know what is true about you and know what is false about you. And what is true is that you are dead to sin. What is true about you is that you've been crucified with Christ Jesus. What is true about you is that you have resurrection life. Paul says, know what is true and know what is false. The second thing he says is this. You've got to know what is true, but secondly, you've got to think on what is true. You've got to think on what is true. You've got to get that into your mind. You know it's true, now not because you feel it, because we don't usually feel like we're dead to sin. It usually feels like sin's kind of alive to us, doesn't it? But it's a lie. You've got to know what is true. You're dead to sin. But then you've got to sear it into your brain. You've got to meditate on it. You've got to make it a part of your thinking. So he says this in 6.11. I'll start with 6.10. He says, The death that Christ died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In just the same way, the, the Greek word there means in exact fashion, as an imitation of that. Just as Christ died to sin once and for all, it's a done deal, it's established. And now lives to God, it's a done deal, it's established. So also, you, exactly the same way, consider yourself. Follow me on this. The word there is logizomai. It's the middle tense of the word logo, which means to think. It means to think about yourself, to reflect on yourself, to see yourself, to relate to yourself. And so what Paul is saying here is this. Believer, you're dead to sin. That's an established fact. I don't care what you experience, you're dead to sin. Now, begin to see yourself like that. Begin to relate to yourself like that. Begin to confront the other masters in your life who keep on telling you that you're not dead to sin, who keep on telling you that they have authority over you. Begin to confront that by being, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's the rub of things. I really believe. Here's the rub. Here's the, my Bible's falling all apart. I'm getting too excited. Settle down, Greg. All right. The question is, the reality is changed. We're dead to sin. If you're a believer here this morning, when you believe in the Lord, you're dead to sin. You're alive in Christ Jesus. You have God's life within you. That's the reality. But our own way of thinking about ourselves, the way we relate to ourselves, and the way we experience ourselves doesn't line up with that. Paul says if you want to be free from the addictive sin in your life, the things that destroy you, number one, know what is true. Number two, think of what is true. Think about it, consider it, put it in your brain in the morning, put it in your brain in the afternoon, put it in your brain at night, because until you can see yourself as you are in Christ, you'll never begin to live like you are in Christ. What is true about you is that you died with Christ Jesus. That's what's true about you. And therefore, no one can have any claim on you. That's what's true about you. What's true about you is that you're dead to sin, therefore it doesn't have power over you. What is true about you is that you're a king's kid. And therefore, you're no one's slave and you're no thing's slave. What is true about you is that you're an heir to the throne, and if you're an heir to the throne, you're not indebted to anything. What is true about you is that you've identified with Christ Jesus on the cross and identified him with the resurrection from the tomb, so you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. You're redeemed, you're spotless, you're holy, you're bought with a price, and that means you can't belong to anyone else. That's what's true about you. Whatever you experience, whatever you think, that's what the reality is. So Paul is saying, get your mind to line up with that truth. It's kind of like this, you know, they say that, that um, um, I, I don't know if this is even true, but I hear the story, and it's kind of nice one, so I'll repeat it. You know, there's a, they say with elephants, circus elephants, it's very important that you don't get circus elephants to go running wild. 
But all you need to keep circus elephants from running wild is to have a little string around their, their, uh, their leg and attached to a little stick in the ground, and they'll never run wild. And the reason is because they really believe they can't break that stick and that string. And the reason they believe that is because when they were little tiny baby elephants, there was a great big chain around their, their leg attached to a very deep stake in the ground. And that little baby elephant constantly, for the first year of its life, was trying to break free of this thing, couldn't do it. And finally, it comes to the understanding, the conclusion, that you can't, you can't ever break free of this. There's no use trying. And so it stops trying. And once it stops trying, you don't need a big chain anymore. The chain is up here. What we have in the church today, for a lot of us, and I've been here a lot in my life, is I got chains all up here. Because the enemy... The enemy had chains on me and had a deep stake in the ground, but the Bible says that when I believe in Christ, I'm identified with Christ, and what that does is it takes this, this uh, sin, it takes this chain and makes it into a little tiny string, and it takes me and makes me into this big, humongous elephant, a super powerful elephant. It's like super elephant with a great big S-E on the, on the front. Super elephant. And I've got all the power in the universe with a giant cape on my back, and I can break free from this little tiny puny string and this little tiny puny stick in the ground if I just know who I really am. The power is there, the resource is there, the reality is there, but the question is, where's your brain at? How do you relate to yourself? The enemy is constantly saying, you can't do that. You know that that's just a big lie. That's just not true. You're powerless. You're a wimp. You've got no power. I'm the boss here. You know that. You've tried to get free from me before, but it didn't work, did it now? You break that by taking God's word over against whatever else the enemy may say about you. Break the bondage of the master. Then Paul says this. You got to know what is true. You got to think what is true. And number three, you got to live what is true. Here's what he says in uh, in uh, 6.12. Therefore, do not let sin reign, rule, dictate, is the word. Don't let sin rule in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves up to God. Two things I want to make known there. Two things I want to bring out there. First of all, Paul uses the word therefore. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Therefore always points to what just came before it. What came before it? Paul said, you're dead to sin. That's what's true about you. You're a corpse. That's what's true about you. You're redeemed. That's what's true about you. Therefore, why live as though that were not true? Get it in your knowledge, get it in your mind, and then get it in your life. Why live as though that were not true? You don't need it anymore. Because of who you already are, live in such a way. Paul doesn't say what we are inclined to say a great deal, and that is live in such a way so that you can become a certain kind of person. He doesn't say give up sin so that you can be in Christ. He says because you're in Christ, you can give up sin. It's so important that we keep that order straight. It's kind of like this. There are a lot of people who, a lot of people who uh, uh, kind of see themselves like dogs. They let people treat them like dogs. Someone says, do this, and they do that. They have no kind of uh, sense of self-esteem whatsoever. People can walk on them. People can use them. They, they get treated like dogs. And what needs to happen to them is for them to see that they're not dogs. They're a person. They're a human being, and therefore they shouldn't act like a dog. You've got, you've got a, they need to be reminded that they've got an intelligence that dogs don't have, and they've got rights that dogs don't have, and they've got a worth that dogs don't have, so you don't need to be acting like a dog. Because you're already a human being, don't act like a dog, and don't let people treat you like a dog. But it's not the case that not acting like a dog makes you a human being. 
Because you could train a dog to do that, I suppose. Could a dog act like a human being? Oh, I'm late for an appointment. I don't know. <laughs> but you get the point I'm getting at. You don't act like a dog because of what you already are, and so it is with us in Christ Jesus because of who we are. When we see who Christ is, when we see what Christ has done for us, when we see our worth, when we see that the Holy Spirit's within us, when we see the power that we have because of what is already true of us, regardless of what you experience, regardless of what, in fact, is going on in your life, when you see what is true because of what Christ has done, then you begin to know who you are and you begin to live out the reality of who you are, and that's what begins to break the addictions in our life. It's seeing the beauty of the Lord, seeing the beauty of what he's already done, the reality that's already there, that begins, begins to break the bondage that is there. So Paul says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. It doesn't make you holier, you know that? It doesn't make you holier. You don't get points for this. You just get more freedom. You just get more of the reality of what you have already got. Because all you are never shall be. It's already been done for you on the cross of Calvary. But then Paul adds one more thing, and it's an important one more thing in verse 13. He says, because of this, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And he says, offer up yourself as a sacrifice. Not to the wickedness anymore, not to the destructiveness, but offer up yourself to God. The word offer up there is, is, is the word that's usually used for a sacrifice. To offer up something is a sacrifice. It's a price you pay. You know what? You are paying a price with addiction. There's always a price you pay. A price for your health, a price with your family, a price with your integrity, a price with everything. There's a price tag. And you're willing to make that sacrifice because you're addicted. There's a price you pay. What Paul is saying is, pay the price in the other direction. Pay the price of freedom. Here's the price. The old master just doesn't go away. God has given us the reality to walk out of the tomb, but the rock still sometimes feels heavy because we're so used to that. That's how we've always thought. We're, we're accustomed to that. And when you try to leave, the old master will do all the tricks of punishing you and deceiving you to try to get you back. And it does hurt. Because we're saved and freed by grace doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt to walk out of what we're used to. It takes two things. Number one, it takes an act of will. An act of will. The reality is there. But you know what? You have to make a decision as a human being whether or not you're going to live like a human being or live like a dog. You're still a human being. The choice is yours. What are you going to do? And if you're addicted to acting like a dog, it's going to be hard for you to live according to how a human being should live. And so it's just the same way with us, with sin and bondage in our life. We make a decision. Boom, done for. It, it, it's no longer. I'm going to walk this way. And it has to be a repeated decision because that little voice, that master is going to come after you in two days or three days or three weeks. Three years down the road, he'll come after you, trying to reel you back in. You make a, de a decision. I simply don't do that. I'm done with that. It's over. I choose to walk in freedom. The second thing it entails is this. You suffer. You will suffer. I've heard of people who have been delivered from cocaine. They come up, they get prayed for, boom, cocaine's gone. Get prayed, get prayed for. I had a friend that this happened to. Boom, nicotine and addiction's gone. But that rarely happens. <laughs> don't bank on it. Don't, don't go be waiting around for God just to take away the craving. It rarely happens. Thank God if it does. But don't bank on it. It's probably going to involve suffering. But here's the thing. We have a myth in our culture that suffering is a bad thing. We have a myth in our culture. It's really kind of a pleasure addiction. That if we're uncomfortable, if, if, if our mouth is dry, if our head aches, if we're not feeling right, then that's terrible, that's wrong, and we must get comfort immediately. But it's a myth. The Bible says that suffering for righteous purposes is a godly thing, it's a good thing, it's a beneficial thing. 
So when you go through this suffering, and it usually takes a couple weeks, sometimes it takes a couple months. A brother-in-law, Dave, who, who kicked the nicotine habit, he says it's like a full-time job for six months. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing. When you go through that, try to reframe the suffering. The suffering isn't a bad thing, a death thing, a negative thing. The suffering is a positive thing because this is the taste of freedom. This is what is bringing you life. This is, this is what is bringing you out of that old master. This is what is bringing you into more of what God created you to be. Try to reframe it. It's like the story I heard about a, 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 a Jewish man and his boy when they were escaping out of Warsaw when they were under siege from the Nazis. They had to escape through uh, these uh, sewage tunnels. And they were up to their waist in, 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 in uh, human manure. As well, sometimes his son almost passed out because of the fumes. But he was always complaining and miserable about it. There was a two-mile walk where they had to get out. And, this, and the father reported later on saying this to his son, Son, do not despise this smell because this is the smell of freedom. This is the smell of life. If it were not for the smell, we never would get out of here. This is the smell of freedom, so you embrace it. And so it is with the suffering that goes along with quitting what we were previously enslaved to. It involves suffering, but the suffering isn't a bad thing. And all of it's possible for one reason, that is because Christ suffered for us on the cross of Calvary. We have the power to walk out of the tomb and roll away the stone because of the power of Calvary. He died for us. When we believe in him, all that he accomplished is applied to us. It makes us new creatures. We're going to now uh, celebrate communion together on this Palm Sunday. And as we do, I'd like us to consider what he did for us. Remember once again and experience once again the reality. This, is, this in its way is like a little baptism. It's a reminder of who we really are because of what Christ has done for us. He broke his body. He shed his blood. And so let's celebrate communion together. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit of freedom would be here, Lord. You have said to us in Galatians 5 that for freedom you have set us free. And that freedom doesn't always come easy, Lord. It hasn't come easy in my life. It hasn't come easy in a lot of people's life here, Lord. But the freedom will come, Lord, not when we are ashamed of it and beaten up by it, but when we increasingly know who we are in you. I pray, God, that your spirit of freedom would be here as even we take communion. Set your people free, Lord God. Roll away the stones. Silence the masters that have been speaking in our life. Help us to see that we're new creatures in you because of what you've done for us. Amen.